0: And welcome to the NPR Politics Podcast. It is time for our weekly roundup. And where last week national security and terrorism were barely on the political radar, this week as a result of the attacks in Paris, these issues are dominating the debate. And this podcast, too. From surveillance policy to immigration, even the politics of Facebook profile pictures. And then we will go to a little something we like to call can't let it go, where we each share a story that we just can't stop thinking about this week. But first, you might want to know who we are here in this little room. I am Tamara Keith. I'm an NPR White House correspondent, and I also cover the campaign.
1: I'm Ron Elving, editor and correspondent. I'm Scott Detrow. I cover tech and politics. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter here at NPR.
0: And let's start with those attacks in Paris. Scott Detrow, you've been reporting on sort of a side angle on this, which is the issue of surveillance. And and that has really become a campaign issue this week. It's
2: become a campaign issue this week, and it had been completely MIA up until this point. And a terror attack will change that conversation. Uh, Marco Rubio was was the first to kind of make this an issue early this week. He was speaking at a forum, and he brought up a June Senate vote that we'll explain in a moment and said, this is something we need to talk about on the campaign. At
1: least two of my colleagues in the Senate aspiring to the presidency, uh, Senator Cruz, in particular, have voted to weaken the U.S. intelligence programs just in the last month and a half and the weakening of our intelligence gathering capabilities leaves America vulnerable.
2: So what Rubio is talking about is a a June vote to scale back the Patriot Act. This was probably the biggest significant legislative change to come out of the whole Snowden thing. Now the phone companies keep that information, the metadata from our phone records, who we're calling, when we're calling them, how long we're talking, and they only turn it over to the government when there's a judicial order, a warrant that's very specific, and that's a big change. And the reason that Rubio brought this up is because Ted Cruz and Rand Paul were both very high profile supporters of making this change. This was one of those kind of fake filibusters that Rand Paul had where he went on the Senate floor and talked until, you know, one or two in the morning. We've got a cut from Rand Paul's floor speech. And it's interesting because it tells you how much a terrorist attack can change the tone of conversation. Yeah. Some people are so fearful, they're like, how could we get terrorists? We'll be overrun with terrorists, and ISIS will be in every drugstore and in every house in America if we don't get rid of the Constitution. Can you imagine
3: him saying something like that this week? No, and uh, I can't imagine Ted Cruz coming out on the floor and pitching in to help him out the way he did when he gave that pseudo fil- filibuster back last winter. And interesting, too, that Marco Rubio, in deciding to use this issue against some of his opponents, targeted Ted Cruz. Right. And not so much Rand Paul, because he doesn't really see that there's a big threat from Rand Paul. He's worried about Ted Cruz.
1: Right. And my question all the time on issues of uh, whether surveillance is working or not, how much can the federal government tell us if it's actually worked?
0: <laughs> That's you know, a, I mean, like, yeah. how many, how do, many
1: times can they tell you mean how much do they us? know or how much can they tell us? Both.
0: Well, Good so questions. back when this was a big fight, the White House and and the intelligence agencies came out with a list of terrorist attacks that were thwarted because of the metadata.
1: How many were on that list?
0: I think it was about a dozen. But under the light of scrutiny... um, They melted. They melted. Yeah, Yeah. they melted. It it was basically found that most of these could have been done through other means.
1: Without the surveillance, or the advanced surveillance.
0: And in some ways, the administration or those who would want more surveillance are in the position of proving a counterfactual. I think that the point here, though, in part, is that This is being used as a proxy that Marco Rubio is using this thing that may not even be remotely related to what actually happened in France. He's using this as a proxy to have a fight about is the Republican Party a party that is hawkish and big on defense and big on surveillance or is it a party that is stepping back?
2: I think, Tamara, you're absolutely right on that. And I think, as Ron pointed out, the fact that Rubio called out Cruz and not uh, Paul. When he made that comment, it tells you everything you need to know.
0: About the state of the race.
2: And I think what we're also going to see in the presidential race and beyond is kind of a broader conversation because over the last few years, because of Edward Snowden, and also because there hadn't been a major terrorist attack to kind of get people thinking in that mindset, people who are in favor of a robust, aggressive, Dick Cheney-esque national security structure have really been on the defensive. They've really been beaten up. And you saw after Paris an immediate aggressive push from people like John Brennan, the head of the CIA, and others to really blame this on Edward Snowden, basically. Um, Brennan gave a a very pugnacious speech in Washington earlier this week. He said that there'd been too much hand-wringing and it left the country vulnerable. So maybe not that Nobel Peace
3: Prize for Ed Snowden this year. And yet, I believe Oliver Stone is still on track for the release of his movie.
2: Well, no, English, no. no Peace Prize, but a uh, an Oliver Stone movie. Where's I guess a lot out? of people would settle Where's, for that. I have not heard a lot he, from
3: Snowden.
0: He's, he's in Russia. Still. He's still in Russia. All right. With and his girlfriend. <laughs> yes, who he abandoned in the name of outing Abandons national security. a strong word. Well, no, he really, he did.
2: When you, when you move to the other side of the world and don't tell
1: your girlfriend, oh he didn't tell her. Can't. No, you he
2: didn't tell her. The shade of it all. He didn't tell her, and then like the national media showed up on her doorstep, and she's like, "Where'd my boyfriend no. go?
1: How am <laughs> I not seeing this
0: footage?" Oh yeah, no, this was a thing. Um... Also in the news this week are the refugees, specifically whether or not the U.S. should take in Syrian refugees in light of the Paris attacks.
3: Right. Well, we we had millions of people who have been displaced in the Middle East region in recent years, and many of them have made their way toward Europe. Hundreds of thousands have been trying to relocate in Europe. And there is also a trickle that has begun to head towards the United States, very small numbers thus far.
0: And the White House has said that they want 10,000 in in the next year. That's
3: right. By the end of the 2016 fiscal year, they would like to see 10,000 resettled in the U.S. We're nowhere near that number as yet. And the governors have started saying right after the Paris attacks, and of course, many of the governors probably already had these concerns, but they took this moment to say, we're not going to put that on the residents of our state. We are going to say in one way or another, either none at all, not coming here, uh uh-uh, no way, or saying something like, we need to have more reassurance. We need to have more vetting. We have to know exactly how these people are being checked out, and we want to see some kind of certification from the federal government before we cooperate in resettling them in our states.
0: And it happened like dominoes. It happened very quickly in a matter hours. of... Yeah. It just like boom, 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 mm-hmm. all these states. That's However, right. I think there is some nuance in the position. And the interesting thing about Rick Snyder from Michigan is that he started this. He was the first domino. But he actually has a, um, a much more moderate position than some of the other governors. He was on Morning Edition speaking with Steve Inskeep earlier this week.
3: So in a general sense, I've been very much in favor of refugees across the world. The issue that I said we should hit the pause button for is these horrific terrorist events that have sort of coincided. We have Paris in particular, but also the suicide bombings in Lebanon. You know, 43 people died there, and then the Egyptian airline bombing. I think it would be great if we had more transparency and awareness of the review processes to let in people coming here for the American dream in a positive way. You know, I can imagine a scenario in which Rick Snyder might actually lead some of the pullback from this and some of the nuanced restatement of what exactly it is we're going to do. But for the moment, to satisfy the demands of the emotional uh, moment at the end of the Paris uh, attacks a week ago, this would have been what most governors felt they had to go out and say right away to placate the people in their state.
2: Yeah. And I think what took a lot of people by surprise was, uh, was how visceral and how raw some of the statements coming from not just governors, but local politicians as well were, and how quickly things took a turn that you just don't often hear that much in American politics, the way that some of these refugees were being talked about as, as kind of a problem. I think that took a lot of people by surprise.
0: And there was and, also talk of religious tests,
1: Yeah, which was interesting to me because as someone who can technically say that I am Pentecostal or Christian, I was raised that, am I that now? like who is to be the judge of that how does anyone institute a religious test i know that jeb bush has spoken of it it just
2: brings to mind kind of like the biblical idea of like the pass phrase to pass as a christian the shibboleth the bible as channeled through west wing that a lot of people (laughs) would probably know that phrase from more but but i mean it's a very tricky tough subject because you say something as an idea and then like when the conversation goes how can you do that in reality i think that's where it gets very tricky and tough
1: and i mean like There are a lot of leaders across the country who are trying to approach some kind of nuanced view saying we still want to accept refugees, but how do we securely background check these folks? How do we I mean, like, but that kind of gets washed out Mm -hmm. when there is some of the strong rhetoric. And I'm also interested in how much is all of the rhetoric on all sides of this issue around refugees and immigration, just a really, really clunky conversation and a way of asking the question how do we stay safe? How do we keep ourselves safe? No one has really found a way to answer that question, so we have these conversations about all of these other things, kind of. I mean, in what ways are we all just reaching for a question that maybe even has no answer? I
3: think it has two big big elements to the context. One is safety, of course. Everyone wants to be able to look at their child and say, I'm not going to be worried about sending my child off to school this morning. That's one thing. The other thing is the larger context of how our attitude nationally is changing about immigration, because refugees conflate with immigrants. And Donald Trump, of course, let's slow down immigration, let's reverse it, let's send everybody home that doesn't have documents. That attitude segues very quickly into greater resistance to a group of refugees and vice versa. Yeah, and
1: I mean, this whole debate has brought up some interesting cleavages. Just this week, a lot of Christian groups broke ranks with GOP leaders and said, we actually support bringing refugees here and we'll keep doing so. And they're involved in it. They're among the people who have brought the most refugees to the U.S. over the years.
0: And Sam, you are watching the Internet, as you often do, and the the Paris attacks really played out on Facebook in an interesting way.
1: Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm sure most of you have seen friends of yours on Facebook put a French flag filter over their profile photos. It's the same thing that Facebook did uh, after gay marriage became the law of the land here in the States, and the pride flag was featured prominently on lots of folks' uh, profile photos. And the thing with this, it's the more that I dug into it and looked into people using this flag, not everybody was happy about it. A lot of people were actually mad that people would use a French profile flag after the attacks. Folks folks that did it said that they were doing it to show solidarity with the French. But lots of other folks said, well, you didn't do that after the attacks in Beirut or the attacks in Iraq. And Facebook doesn't even have options to put those countries' flags up, right? Then I saw some really interesting online conversation of folks comparing that argument to people responding all Lives Matter to the Black Lives Matter movement. And they would say... Of course we get that all lives matter, but right now we're talking about black lives. Um, and, And some folks online drew this comparison saying, of course we grieve for all death, but right now we're talking about Paris. And it's almost impossible to mourn for everything and everybody all of the time. So this week we put out a big call out on our Facebook page asking folks why they did the French profile flag filter, what it meant. We got hundreds of responses. One person said that they didn't feel comfortable doing it because unlike the pride flag for gay marriage, grief is not a cause. Grief is grief, right? We had other people that wondered if they put the French flag up, does that mean that they're supporting French airstrikes that might kill civilians? There was so much division. Mm -hmm. And I think what I saw in this is like the divided nature of our politics right now. We can't even agree on how to be sad together.
3: But there's a tremendous diversity in those responses as well, and that has a place in social media. Like, perhaps more there than any other kind of media, you can have a thousand schools of thought, and they can all bloom. Scott? Can I play the role of, like, cranky old man for a moment? Oh, please. <laughs> this this is kind of my territory, Scott.
2: Is that okay with you, Ron? Yeah, okay. <laughs> right. I think this, and I feel this way after every major tragic news event, I think that social media can show what what is best about this world of technology we live in and what is worst i mean i think the connectivity that you get in social media is an amazing thing uh we have a good family friend who lives in paris and i was very happy to see her check in safely that night she lives in that neighborhood and the the way that you can talk around the world in an instant is great but i think also if you look at how twitter plays out and you look at how facebook plays out after a tragedy it's just depressing you have that moment of instant news coming across and you're seeing news reports and information. And then very quickly, within an hour, it seems like, it turns into political posturing and ideological posturing and one-upsmanship that it just leaves you yeah. very – it leaves me personally angry and I just have to turn off the computer and, and walk I just away. I feel
1: like people look for reasons to express their anger and whatever event that they can latch on to that lets them do that, they do that. Well, and-
0: but isn't that what social media – is for I mean social media is for posting pictures of your puppy or your baby and saying, Look at how wonderful my life is. You can't see all this other stuff I'm not posting. And it's also for going up on Facebook and being angry. And I
1: think with both of those things it shows that social media is also all about you. It's like oh, it's about yeah. So like I saw lots of people saying, Oh my goodness, I studied abroad in France fifteen years ago for two weeks. It's like I'm there right now. I'm so hurt. Here's a picture of me looking sexy, the Eiffel Tower, like posing, you know, it's just like, it's like narcissistic. But what's interesting is like the more that I read, even the French had some divisions about if they should use a flag or not. There was an interesting article in the Washington Post by a French journalist. She said that for many French people, the French flag has come to symbolize the far right of French politics, Mm. which is anti-Muslim and Mm, anti-immigrant. Even the French have divisions about this. So I reached out to Facebook and asked them about not just the profile flag photos, but these security check-ins where friends of yours that live in Paris can say, I'm safe. Um, Facebook would not give me too much information, but they did say that, you know, they're not doing this for every event. And they acknowledge that. They, they said that 26 million people use the pride flag after gay marriage. They wouldn't give me numbers for the French flag. And they did say that the safety check-in has been used in five events. Um, the earthquake in Afghanistan, the earthquake in Japan in 2011, the Paris attacks, the earthquake in Chile, and the earthquake in Nepal. So but, this was the first, like— terror. Terrorism. Exactly. But yeah. I notice in my emails with Facebook, they are treading very carefully mm-hmm. because Facebook and Twitter have positioned themselves as the new public square, but they also don't want to be political. They're scared of Pissing off any part of their user base, I think,
0: and yet they are fueled by politics.
1: Exactly, exactly. (laughs) It's a conundrum, and they're taking more and more steps into
2: creating new, you know, media content. This new Twitter moments thing—they're kind of framing stories for us, and that gets into all sorts of editorial questions and political questions in itself. But you're right; they're trying to be neutral and forward at the same time.
0: Now it's time for the part of the show that we call can't let it go. Ron?
2: This week, I can't stop thinking
3: about that video. Many people have seen it, but for those who have not seen it, you can Google it up as Explaining Paris dad or explaining Paris to a little boy. Uh, There are many, many, many iterations of it. It's about 80 seconds worth of tape. It's in French, but all of the versions of it that I have seen, you can see the interpretation. It's an adorable little Parisian boy looking at the flowers and the candles that have been put out for the victims of the Friday the 13th massacres.
0: Oui, parce qu'ils sont très, très, très méchants. And he
3: is asking what it's all about, and his father is explaining. And the little boy says, why did this happen? And they try to explain to him, and he says, but they have guns. And the father says, but we have flowers. And they have this extraordinary conversation, which I really think everyone ought to witness, as a kind of source of hope. And the
0: conclusion of the conversation is the little boy concluding that the flowers and the candles are there to protect us from the guns.
1: And he feels better.
0: And Sam, what is your can't let it go? What can't you My can't
1: let it go this week. Um, so we all remember the media availability that President Obama had soon after the attacks in Paris. And he, in one part of the conversation, said, you know, lots of people want to criticize my strategy against ISIS, but where are their ideas? In explaining that point, he used a phrase that I'm not used to hearing politicians use.
0: Folks want to pop off and have opinions about uh, what they think they would do. Present a specific plan.
1: So pop off is this phrase that I am not used to hearing politicians say. It comes from hip hop culture, it comes from rap, and it's been a big word in reality TV. One of my favorite scenes from the very, very bad show called Bad Girls Club. (laughs) <laughs> Includes an altercation between Tanisha and one of the other girls where she's yelling, pop off, pop off. And it's a word that seems to be, at least from what I've seen in my social media feeds, steeped in black culture. Um, this word, this phrase, once Obama uttered it, became the topic of a multitude of minds and tweets and gifs and memes. It even ended up in a song. Pop
0: pop folks pop, off, pop, off, pop off.
1: I, i'm feeling it. <laughs> right all right so like this for me is just like the latest example of obama code switching he is using a word a term from hip-hop vernacular and he's doing this i found with more frequency and with more comfort and he's he he is different on race than he was before
0: scott detrow what can you not give up this week
1: I gotta say, I'm really worried about Mike Huckabee's
2: marriage. Um, I'm really concerned. I'm actually about not. It. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'll tell you why because at every single debate, he brings up in one way or another the fact that his wife is really mad at him. Well, John, I don't really have any weaknesses that I can think of. Um, but my wife is down here in the front, and I'm sure if you'd like to talk to her later, she can give you more than you'll ever be able to. Take care of, and that's not uh, the only one. I think we actually pulled together all of the Mike Huckabee "My wife is mad at me" moments from the debates this year. Well, my wife's name's Janet, <laughs> and when you say Janet yelling, I'm very familiar <laughs> with what you mean. This is who you're going to put on the ten-dollar bill. Of. That's an easy one. I'd put my wife on there. I've been married to her 41 years. She's fought cancer and
3: lived through it. She's raised three kids, five great-grandkids. And she's put up with
2: me. I mean, who else could possibly be on that money other than my wife? And then that way she can spend her own money to <laughs> her face. And that way she can spend her own money. Got a lot of from the Twitter's attention uh, at the uh, time. <laughs> this a reminder, but this is Reverend Mike Huckabee.
3: Yeah. Because this is preacher humor. This mm-hmm. is this is from the pulpit kind of you know self-deprecating stuff that kind of makes the congregation chuckle. But, but yeah. the point is, yeah.
2: listen for it next time. Every single debate, Mike yeah. Huckabee... Make some sort of wife comment, and sometimes it's linear and makes sense, and other times it's out of nowhere, like
0: Janet
3: Yellen. Well, and, and 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 listen, if one of these weeks he doesn't make one of those jokes, you got to figure the Huckabee's are on the ropes. Well, we'll keep a close eye.
0: And Mike can't let it go. Also involves Republican governors. Mike Huckabee is one of the few Republican governors left in it. You know, there was this thought, like, oh my gosh, executive experience. The Republican governors are going to dominate this thing. Bobby well. Kendall. Yeah, Bobby Jindal. This week, Bobby Jindal dropped out, and it barely made a blip. We've also already lost Scott Walker, who was once thought to be, you know, a shoe in and Rick Perry, the Texas governor. There are only a few governors left, and they are registering in the single digits at this point. But really, all of the buzz and all of the talk is about a businessman and a couple of senators, uh, freshman senators, which you never would have thought after all of the criticism of a freshman senator who is our current president.
2: That really jumped out to me for a couple of reasons. First of all, because uh, Scott Walker, Bobby Jindal, and Rick Perry are all people who over the last few years, you know, people have pointed to and said, these are strong governors. They're popular governors in their state. They're popular with the base. They can make great candidates. And I think it's fair to say that there's been a decades-long conventional wisdom that governors make more attractive candidates and better presidents. I mean, you Obama was, what, the first president since uh, Kennedy to go directly from the Senate to the White House? And there had only been
3: one before that. So it is rare. And and that was the story in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. And it was the story with George... W. Bush, who might have kind of broken that mold a little bit. Plus, we now have a Republican party, at least, where people are just not satisfied expressing their anger by putting up a governor. They want somebody who is either Donald Trump or Ben Carson on the outside, maybe Carly Fiorina in there, too. Or they want two guys who are famous for either rejecting the Senate while they're in it. Marco Rubio can't wait to get out of here. Don't even show up to vote. Or Ted Cruz, who's willing to shut down the whole government. What could be better for the anti-establishment mentality than shutting the government right on down?
0: And that is all the time we have for this week's Roundup. I'm Tamara Keith.
3: I'm Sam Sanders. I'm Ron Elving. And I'm Scott Detrow.
0: And this is the NPR Politics Podcast.